This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. If you like your science, you may have noticed a significant breakthrough in December. For the first time, an experiment into nuclear fusion got more power out of the reaction than it put into it. It was only a tiny amount for a tiny amount of time. Lasers at the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California put 2.05 megajoules of energy into a pellet of frozen hydrogen. That's energy equivalent to about 500 grams of TNT. What it released was 3 megajoules, so that's an energy gain of 1.5. The reaction lasted less than 100 trillionths of a second, but it demonstrated that, in principle, fusion reactors can work. That means we can replicate the fusion reactions that take place inside stars and a future of entirely clean energy drawn from hydrogen rather than fossil fuels, leaving no nuclear waste or carbon emissions is possible. All we need to do is sort out these stupendous technical requirements. So how far away is that dream of limitless clean energy and, my personal priority, a Tony Stark-style arc reactor? Here to explain it all to me is Dr. Sharon Ann Holgate, a science writer. She's a broadcaster. She writes for Science Magazine and The New Scientist. She has a doctorate in experimental physics. She's just won the William Thompson Lord Kelvin Medal and Prize for work in communicating science. And her latest book is Nuclear Fusion, The Race to Build a Mini Sun on Earth. Hello, Sharon. How are you doing? Hello, Andrew. I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. How excited are you about this uh, this experiment at Lawrence Livermore then? Because it did make headlines. It is very exciting, Andrew. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the sort of fundamental physics that it showed, you know, it was really significant. It was the first time that anyone in a laboratory had been able to demonstrate more energy coming out of a fusion reaction than was put in. So, you know, in that sense, a very exciting thing. So nuclear fusion has been a staple of science fiction for decades. What actually is it? How does the process work? Right. Okay. So it's basically, you know, as we would use the word fuse to fuse together two objects or whatever, it's basically two nuclei fusing together to create a new one. So you can kind of think of it as the opposite to nuclear fission, which is what the nuclear power plants that we have currently are based on. In that process that you have then a nucleus that gets split into two nuclei and releases a huge amount of energy. Whereas in nuclear fusion, you've got two nuclei coming together and also releasing a huge amount of energy. So you could kind of look at that and think, well, they're almost the sort of opposite to one another, but they're kind of the opposite to one another in the way that you could think about driving a car. You're 
It's opposite if you're driving forward compared to if you're driving in reverse, but you're still driving a car, if you see what I mean. So it's the actual process of creating new nuclei that is actually resulting in the release of these vast amounts of energy. And so the energy release actually comes from something called the strong nuclear force. And this basically is what binds or kind of glues the protons and neutrons together inside a nucleus. One of the effects of this strong nuclear force is that the mass of a nucleus is actually slightly less than the mass of the individual protons and neutrons it's made up from, which is just quite a peculiar effect of physics, but quite useful for us because whenever you're creating new nuclei, either through through fusion or through fission, you've got some mass left over and this gets released as energy. And it was actually Einstein who showed the equivalence of mass and energy first. In other words, that mass and energy are interchangeable in his special theory of relativity in 1905. And this is encapsulated in what's arguably, I would say, the most famous equation in the world, E equals mc squared. So E in the equation is the amount of energy released in both fission and fusion. And it's absolutely enormous because it's equal to the mass difference, which is the little m in the equation, but it's multiplied by c, and that's the speed of light, and that number is then squared. So, of course, the speed of light is really big. It's 300,000 kilometres a second. So even if you've got a tiny little mass difference, because it's being multiplied by the speed of light squared, this results in a gigantic amount of energy. So in short, nuclear reactions, either fission or fusion, can give us an awful lot of energy out. Is it possible to explain in kind of layperson's terms how a, a working fusion reactor might work? Because that's the that's the reaction you just described, but actually building the thing. And I, I believe there's there's two broad streams of how this is done. Yes, that's right, Andrew. I mean, at first, if we talk about, you know, how most of the designs that are being proposed would work, a lot of them, the sort of end part of the process, if that makes any sense, would be just the same as a conventional reactor. So a lot of the designs have water flowing through the walls of the reactor, and this gets heated up due to the reaction going on inside. That gets then, the water is converted into steam that then drives turbines and gives us electricity. So in that sense, you know, that sort of end of a fusion power station would look exactly the same as from other types of power station. There are various other designs, particularly some being worked on by private fusion companies that would involve trying to extract the electricity more directly from the reaction. But in, in many of them, it is, as I say, a process which would look very similar, uh, the end that sort of bolted onto the national grid to the power stations that we have now. So you asked me what the difference was between the two main types of fusion. So you basically got something called magnetic confinement, and you've also got inertial confinement. So in the magnetic system, you're basically looking to sort of confine and control a plasma. 
So basically, you have a plasma, which is an ionized gas of your fusion fuel, and it's has to be heated to incredibly high temperatures. I mean, we're talking 10 times the temperature in the core of the sun. So, you know, 150 million degrees C, really, really hot. And that's the sort of temperatures you need for fusion to occur. So you've got this thing that's just so hot. I mean, it would just melt anything that it came into contact with. So you've got to find a way of keeping this gas, this this, this plasma, away from the walls of the reactor. Otherwise, the whole thing would, would, would just melt. So one of the ways is to use magnetic fields. And how this works, it's kind of like a bit of a cage because the plasma, because it is an ionized gas, which basically means you've stripped electrons off of the atoms. So you've left, you've got your negatively charged electrons all moving around at high speed in the plasma. And you've also got positively charged then atoms, which are known as ions, that are also moving around at really fast rates in the plasma. And as they move around, they create like a tiny weeny little magnetic field of their own. And this interacts with the external magnetic field in such a way that you kind of push them away, you know, a bit like a, a giant version of using a bar magnet in a, in a school science demonstration to kind of push iron filings around on a desk, you know, it's a similar thing to that, but on a gargantuan scale. So you're basically then it becomes this kind of magnetic cage, which holds your plasma away from the reactor walls and enables you to confine it. So that's one way that people are hoping that we might be able to use that, that kind of method as a basis for a a future fusion power plant. And the other method is known as inertial confinement. And this involves firing incredibly powerful lasers or particle beams in some configurations at really tiny pellets of hydrogen fuel. And it basically compresses the pellet to such a high density that the fuel nuclei are pushed together into one another and you get fusion. And it's the second one, the inertial fusion, that's what happened at the National Ignition Facility. The amount of energy needs to be put into these things to get out more than you put in just seems absolutely phenomenal. And I believe the, the National Ignition Facility, it can shoot these high-powered lasers at this small capsule of hydrogen only a few times a day. And a working fusion reactor would need that to happen several times a second. How far off are we from that happening? Well, this is the thing, isn't it, Andrew? I mean, as exciting as that result was, you know, yes, you were getting more energy out than you were putting in if you were to look at the actual sort of reactor chamber. But the reality is that they were actually, if you looked at the experiment as a whole, they were actually using an awful lot more energy going in because they were having to power the lasers. Now, I mean, to be fair, to the National Ignition Facility, that experiment was never designed to have particularly efficient lasers, but it does illustrate the fact that it's a long way off of something that actually could be used for me to go and switch on my kettle and make a cup of tea with, you know, but we were a long way away from that point. As you just said, you know, it is an incredible engineering challenge. 
And I don't think we're anywhere near that point. You know, each of these shots on these machine on this machine takes months of planning and preparation just for one shot at the moment. So the idea of scaling that to something that is happening multiple times, you know, a minute or even multiple times a second, it is just fast, really, you know. So when I was writing the book, I was interviewing obviously a lot of fusion experts and a lot of people are kind of hoping really that we'll be looking at fusion power beginning to go on the grid from experimental power stations by the 2030s, but other people still think it's further away. So I really don't know. I think um, I should be very interested to see what happens. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Where is the most, we've all just seen this groundbreaking experiment take place, where is the most significant fusion research happening? Are there there particular countries that are further ahead than others or particular private companies that are perhaps further ahead? I think I would probably not want to call that in the sense that I really do get the impression that there very much is a drive for collaboration. I mean, I don't think there's anyone that I spoke to that felt that that one particular company or one particular experiment was likely to provide all the answers. It seems much more the case that it will be collaboration and it will be extremely incremental as well, that even though this was, yes, a major breakthrough, it was also still a step on the path. You know, there's a long way further to go. And yeah, I I would say it's happening everywhere. To be honest, I I think, you know, there may be small parts of the technology in maybe a company with half a dozen employees that could end up being absolutely critical to something in some power station vastly larger in size. You know, it, it very much is. It's the ability, I think, to combine all of that research in some senses. I mean, they're much more nimble. You know, the private companies have the advantage that they can carry out experiments on designs, which I don't think would get government funding. You know, when you're dealing with taxpayers' money, you have obviously can't start doing things that are incredibly risky because some of the ideas that the private companies are trying out may not work at all. But when they've got private funding, they've got the ability to look at things on a small scale, to turn things around quickly. If things don't work, they can just drop that. Whereas when you're looking at projects funded by governments, there are a lot more caveats to those, quite understandably, because it's all of our money going into it. But although they've got those constraints, on the other hand, they do have the advantage that there's a steady stream of income coming. So as I say, it's kind of, it it is likely to be 
a real joining together of ideas, research, technologies from everywhere from the huge multinational projects to very small companies that looks to be what will get us over that threshold into commercial fusion generation. Presumably working fusion would completely change the world's energy geography as well as have an effect on the direction of climate change. There'd be no more power centres based on fossil fuels. In the world of people looking at this stuff, is that discussed? You know, what happens when say, the oil-dependent regions of the Middle East are suddenly not the powerful thing that they were. Because hydrogen's everywhere, isn't it? Indeed, yes, yes. And yes, this is something that, that people are talking about, you know, more so than ever due to current political circumstances, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, th this is a very attractive thing. But there are people working on other types of design, which would also enable a potential commercial fusion reactor to be a lot smaller. And, you know, there are private companies working on fusion reactor designs that could potentially be small enough to fit on the back of a large truck. So there are certainly people looking at, could we have like these kind of mini reactors that would be sited on the outskirts of towns or cities so that you then didn't have to have as much sort of grid infrastructure you know you you would have your energy generation close to the point where it was being consumed which obviously would be extremely useful and then on a national scale as you say this would of course provide energy security for countries and that for obvious reasons is a very attractive prospect for people has worsening climate change accelerated this research or or is it the kind of research that doesn't need acceleration I would certainly say that um, that the worsening situation with climate change has. Yeah. I mean, if you look in terms of investment alone, particularly in private companies, I mean, this has absolutely shot up in the last few um, few years. And you know, I've, I've pretty much no doubt that that's going to have been accelerated by the climate emergency. I mean, just to give an example, there was a a survey of fusion energy businesses um, taken globally. It was published in October 2021 by the Fusion Industry Association in conjunction with the UK Atomic Energy Authority. And they had 23 private fusion companies that responded to their survey. And they'd received a combined total of nearly $1.9 billion of private funding from the point of their inception to the second quarter of 2021. And that was in addition to $85 million in total that they'd received from governments. So, you know, people were telling me that 10 years ago in Fusion, it was almost impossible to raise any private equity at all. And as that survey, okay, it wasn't totally comprehensive, but it still gave a really good picture of how much money is now going into that sector. Back to the level of the physics. I mean, when you're my age, you've grown up with the fear of the out-of-control nuclear reaction, of the power plant, you know, doing a Chernobyl, losing control of the fission reaction, creating uncontrollable heating, leaking of dangerous radioactive materials, and so on. Now, I'm not going to ask you to say fusion is 100% safe, but down at the kind of the physics level... Is it possible for a fusion reaction to go out of control the way a fission reaction can? No, it's totally impossible for it to, which is one of the really attractive things about it. So, 
if you're looking at fission, it's a thing called a chain reaction. It's a bit like a virus being passed Mm. on. You know, if one of us has got an illness and we pass it to two others, those two others can then pass it to two other people. And all of a sudden, there's four more folk that have got it and so on and so on and so on. And it multiplies away. So if things go wrong inside a fission reactor, you can get this chain reaction multiplying indefinitely and come to your Chernobyl-style disasters and so forth. Fusion's completely different. In order to get nuclei to fuse together, you firstly need these incredibly high temperatures, as we've been saying, you know, 10 times more than the temperature in the core of the sun. So that requires you to put enormous amounts of heating into the plasma that's containing your fusion fuel. So basically, if you get, you know, natural disaster, tsunami or anything like that, the minute you cull the heating, the fusion reaction stops. It's gone. Also, you you know, it it, it isn't, like I say, a, ch- a chain reaction in any sense. You could have all manner of components of the fusion machine break down. I mean, you wouldn't have because obviously they put in huge amounts of effort into looking into the safety of these things and making sure that that doesn't happen. But in, you know, the hypothetical unlikely event that something did, if you stop putting fusion fuel in, the reaction ceases as well. So every time you stop doing something, which might happen in a disaster scenario, the fusion reaction ceases. So that type of problem just isn't feasible at all. It doesn't make for a very exciting sky drama, though, it does doesn't. it? I'm sorry, comrade, we'll just have to turn it off. <laughs> End of episode. I'm afraid it doesn't. No. You know, that this is why some physicists call the fusion reaction inherently safe, because it doesn't have this ability to, mm-hmm. to sort of run away with itself. And the other thing that, you know, I certainly feel is a really important thing is that fusion a fusion reactor, if we can get these things going, won't produce anywhere near the amount of radioactive waste as a fission reactor. I mean, most of the byproduct of the fusion reaction is helium, which is completely inert. It's not radioactive. There is a small amount of radioactivity created just because the fusion reaction gives out neutrons and um, they can irradiate the some of the materials the reactor's made from. But it's literally the case that where all of this has been looked at and supercomputers have modelled the situation, that if you decommissioned a fusion power plant in the future, that actually the levels of radioactivity will have dropped enough that after 100 years, any of us could just walk around inside it and be absolutely fine. By contrast... We're producing radioactive waste from fission reactors that is still incredibly radioactive, millions and in some cases even billions of years after we've used it. So that is another real plus point for fusion reactors and another reason why, in my view, it's really important to try and pursue fusion research and and get this fusion reaction creating our electricity for daily use. Just in closing then, what do you think is the next breakthrough? What's the next thing we should look out for that says fusion reactions are going to get closer as part of our energy supply system? 
I think in a way it's very difficult to call it. I would say it's probably people being able to create reactions very frequently that do give us net energy gain. I mean, that's going to be absolutely critical, as you said at the start of of this, that obviously we've got to be able to achieve that. In some ways, yeah, it's so hard to say because there are so many people working on so many different strands of this. It's it's quite an exciting time. You know, it's difficult to know where that next breakthrough is going to come from. But I would say, watch this space. I listened to the new uh, scientist podcast and they joked that they've been hearing that working fusion is 30 years away all their lives. It's always 30 years away. Do you think it's still 30 years away or is it maybe 25 now? <laughs> I don't know. I must admit that I do recall actually 30 years ago as an undergraduate people coming from um, the jet fusion reactor and giving a talk. And I was terribly excited about it. And it seemed then that fusion energy was just around the corner. And uh, here I sit today and we <laughs> we do indeed seem as far away from it as ever. But in another sense, we're not, are we? Because, you know, we have had that astonishing result from the National Ignition Facility. That really does seem a big step in the right direction. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think I want to play futurologist here. I will say that I, I just hope it's not another 30 years away. I will have my fusion drive spaceship before I die, no matter what. I require it. I'm not taking no for an answer. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do think about our own fusion experiment on Patreon, where you get out more of the bunker than you put in. For as little as £3 a month, you get each episode early and ad-free, plus our classy merchandise. It is the future, I'm telling you. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how it all works. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katya Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.